This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy. Well, it may be a beautiful day outside, but it's steaming hot here in the Radiotherapy booth this morning. The intellectual cogs are spinning furiously in our panellists' heads. I can see them right now. And they are ready to bring you the latest from the world of medicine and a little bit of science too. Uh, Our guest today is Professor Ian Harris. Now, if I was a professor of surgery, I'd be happy enough to kick back and enjoy my monthly overseas holiday, I mean conference, take leisurely drives in my Aston Martin and inspire a deific-like respect in my underlings. The last thing I'd want to do would be to write a book called Surgery, The Ultimate Placebo. But that is just what Prof Harris has done. We'll be talking to him this morning about whether the title of his book was just a marketing idea or whether it's really true. Hmm. Dr. Nicholas Carr. Now, you may know him as your GP, or maybe you've run into him at one or another medical committees, or perhaps you recall his picture adorning the front page of the Age newspaper last month. This is one doctor who doesn't run from controversy. He courts it, marries it, and has a busload of children with it. Today on the show, Dr. Carr will be talking with us about flu vaccination. Mm, I'm looking forward to that because I have loads of theories about flu vaccination. Now, Dr. Perry Natal is one of the hardest working psychiatrists in the business. She really is. Not only does she work as a mother-baby psychiatrist, that is a perinatal psychiatrist. That's why your name is so good, perinatal. But she's also doing a PhD on, get this, psychoneuroimmunology. How amazing is that? And I'm going to be much more impressed. And so is our studio audience, and so is everybody out there, because she is going to explain what psychoneuroimmunology actually is. And specifically, she'll be talking about the NMDA receptor and its importance in psychiatry. All this and so much more in the next hour of radiotherapy. Good morning, Dr. Perry Natal. Good morning, good morning. Nice to see you in the studio, so bright and early. Uh, Dr. Nicholas Carr. How well, are you, very man? good to see you again. And it's not that bright and early. We had the extra hour, remember? Didn't we just? Wasn't that fantastic waking oh. up this morning? Do you know what I, what I love about the time change? I think we win both ways because uh-huh. when it goes backwards, we get an extra hour's sleep. When it goes forwards, we get to go to bed earlier. You know, when I was working overnight... Uh, in the hospital. It was great doing it when you had daylight saving start because you got paid for the extra hour you went there. It was terrible working last night because you had to work an extra hour and you didn't get paid. These are, these are the swings and roundabouts of the public hospital system. Now, uh, Nicolas, April Fool's Day was on Friday, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's only 48 hours since April Fool's Day mm-hmm. and I, I love some of the things that people turn up in the media and uh, TV and so on for April. The first... Um, I, I still have this sense... Uh, that I can't get rid of, that spaghetti grows on trees. Because uh, way back in the early 60s, uh, BBC did a very serious documentary on the plight of the Italian spaghetti tree uh, and how the harvest was being ruined by some <laughs> fungal infection. And they had these lovely pictures of trees with spaghetti growing from them. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, and as a six or seven-year-old, that was obviously where spaghetti came from. I still think that. So I, I thought that was a magnificent April Fool's joke. And, and there's a, there was a restaurant in Melbourne called The Spaghetti Tree, which ah. I think is probably named. Yeah. After that, um, so, so a couple that came up this year, which I really loved. Uh, there was a report that UEFA, the uh, international soccer body, had produced a high-tech soccer ball mm. that, when it crossed the line, screamed out "Goal!" <laughs> <laughs> which is the most lovely idea. Sadly, wasn't true. Um, closer to home, uh, in an uncharacteristic display of good uh, humour, the New South Wales Police Force uh, announced that they were tapping the intelligence of the birds uh, particularly magpies to join their crime fighting efforts <laughs> and That's so cool. this they have created the first avian police response intelligence liaison <laughs> unit and that acronym of course is one april, april. Uh, that is fantastic <laughs> Isn't that the most that is just fantastic? Yeah. Um, you remind me of a soccer ball. We got a uh, little soccer ball um, for the World Cup about uh, it was eight years ago. And um, if you throw it to somebody, it goes goal. 
or ole, 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 ole. And I, I threw it up once and it got stuck in the back of a cupboard in the kitchen. And now whenever we, this is eight years later, whenever we open the kitchen door, it goes, ole, 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 ole. And, I, and the, the power of association is so strong that now when I open a cupboard, I expect ole, ole, ole to come at me. And if it doesn't happen, I say it myself. That is, that is a Pavlovian response. Now, that should be a marketing tool for the battery in that soccer ball. Oh, that's that, no, that is true. Hey, um, some interesting medical news that I was reading up on just recently. And I'll give you a backstory to this. I went to a fantastic uh, presentation by an American psychiatrist on post-traumatic stress disorder. And he really changed the, the, a lot of my preconceptions. He said, what, um, P- one of the aspects of PTSD is it's a problem with forgetting, not just a problem with remembering. And it started me thinking, is, is forgetting an active process? Is it, some, is it just like a degradation of, of neurons on, and receptors and they just kind of wilt away and, and those memories just atrophy? Or does our brain purposely forget? And I came across a news article uh, uh, just uh, this week. Some researchers at the, I think it was University of Scotland, based on some uh, research done at Penn State, had found that there are certain receptors on cells called AMPA receptors, A-M-P-A, that's it's an acronym, and, that's, and these receptors are responsible for consolidating memory. Basically, the more you ramp them up, the more uh, our memories are reinforced. The brain has an active process of removing those AMPA receptors, therefore removing those memories. They don't just atrophy away, they're actively removed. And what these researchers, they've they've demonstrated this in mice. They're giving mice a specific uh, medication will uh, maintain those AMPA receptors there. And this has profound implications for a lot of degenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's diseases, and potentially also for traumatic memories as well. Mm. I just thought, wow, this is a real frame shift. Yeah, that is amazing. But it's happened in movies already. Didn't you ever see the Charlie Kaufman movie, The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where he has memory of this traumatic relationship breakup completely erased so he can go on from day to day forgetting about what, you know, what broke his heart? You never, you know, oh. It's a great movie. Yeah. Isn't, isn't that just what you psychiatrists used to call repression? <laughs> we, call, we call lots of things repression. <laughs> Don't get me started on that. Repression denial. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. So, Nick, before you get into the whole flu vax thing, let me just run this through by so many people say to me, oh, I got the flu vaccination and a week later I got the flu. I must have heard that a thousand times, right? In fact, I've said it a thousand times, right? Mm-hmm. This is my theory. I reckon it's got nothing to do with the little bits of virus that are injected into you. I reckon what happens is you wake up one morning and you go, oh, gee, I better get a flu vax. And the reason that you say that to yourself is because you're feeling a little bit virally. And so you're on the way to getting the flu and then you get the vaccination, which doesn't quite work as well as it should because you're already studying the prodrome of getting the flu. What do you think of that? Vaccination on the cusp of infection. That's right. Oh, it's a great theory. I think that should be the title of your paper. I, um, I think the theory is complete crap. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but don't you reckon... But, but why do people say that then? Why do people say, I got the vax and then I got the flu? Uh, because when you vaccinate hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people at a time of year when viruses are beginning to circulate freely, inevitably there will be people getting viruses not long after they've had the vaccination. On the cusp, my friend, on the cusp. Yes. So it's not whether that's what <laughs> persuaded them to go to that doctor that day or not, I will leave that theory hanging in the breeze where it appropriately belongs. Um, but I think it's more just a chance and statistical association. There's so many viruses around, someone's going to get them within a week of having... It's the same as the association sometimes between serious illnesses or epilepsy and so on and childhood vaccination. We give so many childhood vaccinations that kids who have serious illness will commonly develop those illnesses after a vaccine and that doesn't mean that it caused it. It's just that we give so many vaccines at some point someone's going to develop a serious illness immediately uh, after the vaccine. Because you're saying so numbers, the two. right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. So that would be that would be my version of it. And also, I think people have this fear or this fantasy. It is one of those urban myths that the flu vaccine can give you the flu. I can't. 
It's absolute nonsense, no, because there is no live virus in the flu vaccine. Mm. So can't, can't it revert to wild type or whatever they say? You're confusing your vaccines here, <laughs> right. showing your psychiatric rather than physical <laughs> medicine background. I'm just exploring the issue. Perhaps you better start right at the beginning and tell us about the flu vaccine. I'll ask my dumb question. Because yeah, just if it, there are vaccines that can convert, but they're the modified live vaccines. And a flu virus is not a modified live vaccine. It's dead. It's just inert material. Is it? Yeah, it's bits of a virus that helps stimulate your immune system, not an active whole thing. So, what, so how, where do they get the flu virus from to inject into me and you? So if we, if we go back, as you rightly suggested, to the beginning, flu, uh, flu, flu vaccine comes around around about this time every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a bit late. The last couple of years there was a manufacturing problem. Last year, this year, it all got very confusing because we had what was called the trivalent, which is the usual three-part flu vaccine, mm-hmm. uh, which was being put into production. Then suddenly the government decided no, we're going with the quadrivalent, the four-part flu vaccine, um, which threw everyone into disarray and then everyone had to wait until the four-part vaccine is available and the government supplies are still not yet out there. Um, so it, it's been a slow process this year because there are now two different vaccines. So if it wasn't confusing enough to begin with, it's become even worse, worse with what's so-called trivalent and quadrivalent. Take us through them. Yeah. Um, and the, the extra one, the four virus vaccine, which is the government one, uh, has the same three as the trivalent plus one extra. Mm-hmm. And uh, the powers that be, the intelligent people who make these decisions reckon that one extra is an important one extra. It might be the cause of uh, a significant epidemic this year, so it's important to have that in there. So the government are only supplying the quadrivalent vaccine, the four-part vaccine. So when you say the government, do you mean uh, to GPs? Because I know you still can get trivalent, can't you? Yes, and I have a sneaking suspicion that some of the discount chemists that are selling off their trivalent very cheaply mm. have been slightly caught on the hop because mm. they've laid in huge stocks of this three-part vaccine, uh, which is now not the recommended preferred first choice. And so mm. they're trying to, I suspect, flog it off rather cheaply mm. and quickly before people realise so tell us what, I mean, what, what actually is in this vaccine? You say quadrivalent, trivalent. What so, bits of virus? So one of the things about the flu is that the virus changes its type um, very quickly. Uh, and also our immunity to any particular virus doesn't last very long. So the reason we need an annual flu vaccine is because there are different viruses and our immunity fades off. So this year, um, the trivalent um, vaccine has three viruses and the quadrivalent four and one of the three uh, that's in both these vaccines is the same swine flu h1n1 as it's known technically uh, but you remember swine flu when yeah. that came out seven or eight years ago which was a, a really nasty version we still vaccinate annually against that one because it changes enough our immunity uh, wears off so that that's a very important one that's still in the vaccine this year and then there are three others in the quadrivalent which are other similar types of flu virus but not the same and Mm. that's the point about flu viruses they can be uh, doing the same horrible illness uh, be be different enough to fool your immune system this is what i don't get like the flu has been around for a long time Mm. yeah why can't we just get all the bits of the different flus that have been around for a hundred years because i'm sure we've got samples or 50 years even chop them all up and give a Centivalent uh, vaccine. Sorry? Flu soup. Vaccine. A flu soup, yeah. I love flu soup. This is kind of the holy grail of immunology for flu viruses. And there is some work going on uh, looking at not so much that approach of having a centivalent virus, but a, a vaccine, but looking at which part of the immune system is stimulated by uh, flu antigen and then trying to push that part of our immune system independently of the type of virus and there may be a universal flu vaccine coming up but it ain't there yet like a super flu vaccine exactly so we still need the annual flu shot the government flu shot is free uh to certain groups not to everybody Uh, but it's free to uh adults uh who uh from aboriginal and torres strait islander background Mm -hmm. if they uh, kids under the age of five or over 15, they get it free. Mm-hmm. Uh, any Australian who has a serious chronic disease, uh, something like diabetes, heart disease, asthma, 
can get the free flu shot. And if you're over 65, which I'm not quite there yet, uh, <laughs> if you're over 65, you get it free as well. Right. Otherwise, if you want the flu shot, uh, people have to pay for it. It's not that expensive. It's going to be 20, 25 bucks for the quadrivalent vaccine, which is our preferred one. Right. And certain hospitals, of course, uh, vaccinate their staff free of charge. I know our hospital certainly does, and I'm usually the first in line. I get my little chopper chop, and you get a green sticker. It says you've been immunised. So tell us, I mean, why why are people um, averse, adverse, averse to getting a flu vaccine? I mean, what's the big deal if it's so fantastic? I think there's a, a bit of a community concern. Again, it's one of these urban myths, really, that vaccine might be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not helped by experiences as in WA a few years ago when a batch of flu vax in young children cause some nasty reactions in those young children with febrile convulsions and kids getting really sick. What was that from? This was a particular batch of a particular brand of flu vaccine that did cause some problems. This was a number of years ago. Well, it was contaminated or not well stored? There was a manufacturing problem which led to causing some reactions in kids uh, unexpectedly. Right. So there have been glitches that occur as with any mass-produced product it's Mm. not perfect but the reality is fluvax is an incredibly safe product Mm. flu flu of course is a very nasty illness people forget uh we have uh something like three thousand deaths uh and thirteen and a half thousand hospitalizations in those over 50 in australia every year from the flu really yeah it's a nasty nasty three thousand deaths in australia that's correct from the flu yeah so it's a, a disease that really, pe- people confuse. People wander around saying to each other, oh, I've got a touch of the flu. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you don't get a touch of the flu. <laughs> I was taught that you diagnose flu, number one, on a house call. Because yeah. the patient's up and moving, they haven't got the flu. And my old GP teacher told me, what you do is you put a £50 note in the next room. This was back in the days when yeah. £50 was worth something. And you say to the patient, you can have that. And if the patient gets up to get the £50 <laughs> note, they haven't got the flu. It's a great diagnostic <laughs> test. Uh, having once had the true flu, I realised how incredibly accurate this was because I remember lying in bed feeling like I was going to die mm. and the energy just to turn over in bed and put the radio on seemed too much. Mm-hmm. That's the real thing. I, I used to, I was guilty of saying I've got a bit of the flu until I had the flu about 15 years ago and uh, man, oh man, that was the same thing. Rigors, like shaking, sweats, I just did not want to move. Um, so... Ever since that day, I've been getting the flu vaccine, especially because we're, you know, I work in a hospital where these viruses uh, float around and you want to protect patients and yourself too. Tell us some of the side effects of the flu vax. Well, essentially, the side effects are, for most people, nothing at all. Uh, so it's possible to get a mild fever or that slight sense of glandiness that you can get with any Glandiness? Vaccine. Yeah, that feeling of a bit sort of, oh, I feel a bit sort of achy and uncomfortable. Achy. But really that's, uh, I mean, I always get that. I think I'm just a complete wuss because I, I hate needles. <laughs> I always think I've got some really? horrible reaction. But that, most people, there's absolutely no side effect from the flu vaccine at all. It's an incredibly benign thing to have done. And if you compare that to the seriousness of the flu illness, even if you're fit and well, being confined to bed, feeling awful for a week is bad enough. But you think of those hospitalised and fatality numbers, you see why it's worth getting vaccinated. I mean, I guess you'd see a lot of people who have the flu. What I mean, it's a nasty uh, illness in and of itself, but what happen, What do people get really sick from when they get the flu? Because I imagine they get comorbid diseases as well. Yes, and the, the complications are things like pneumonias and heart problems, which happen occasionally with flu illnesses, which can happen to any healthy immunocompetent adult, mm. someone whose immune system is fine, but more likely when you've got some other problem like already a chest disease or mm. asthma or some heart problem. The other group to, I should mention is pregnant women, very, very important pregnant women get vaccinated, something that a lot of women feel uncomfortable about having a vaccination during pregnancy, mm. proven to be safe, uh, very effective and does make a big difference. There's a lot of evidence that flu during pregnancy is bad for mums, but potentially also bad for babies higher stillbirth rates, that sort of thing, uh, uh, when women have been infected with the flu virus. So is that current government regulation, uh, uh, guidelines that uh, pregnant women get vaccinated? For Correct, flu? yes. Really? And it doesn't matter when in pregnancy, any time. 
Really? And it also helps if you are vaccinated in pregnancy, right. some of that immunity carries on into the newborn mm-hmm. baby yeah. and helps protect the baby in the first few months of life as well. So, so we are coming into flu season. So you get the flu. What, I mean, how do you manage it? What do you do? <laughs> what would you do if you got the flu? I would You'd ask your mum to make you chicken soup. You'd stay in bed. I wouldn't have to ask my mum to make the chicken soup. It would be there. <laughs> and you would, you would take some sensible things like paracetamol or neurofen to help the aches and the fevers, huh. lie in bed and wait. What about this idea of maintaining hydration? Oh, drink plenty of fluids. We removed that from the recommendations about 15 years ago. Really? Because there is no evidence that people ever suffer from dehydration when they have these sorts of illness and there have been deaths from overhydration. Really? So this idea you should drink plenty of fluid uh, has been removed. We don't say that anymore. So, I mean, seriously, so somebody has the flu, uh, you're doing your house call, and they're, they're sort of, you know, fit and healthy like me, and <laughs> fit enough, and um, uh, you're going to say, what, just lie in bed, take some Panadol? That thing that patients hate. who say, I can't do much for you. Antibiotics have no role. Uh, what about antivirals? Do you ever treat patients with a fluid antiviral medication? Oh, that's such a good question. How dare you ask that one? Um, Sorry, it's a question without noticing. I really <laughs> oh, apologise. But it's a, it's a very good question because, of course, there was a massive enthusiasm for antivirals. Uh, started about 10, 15 years ago. Large sums of money won and lost on the stock market for mm. the companies that were going to produce these things. The problem is they are only borderline effective you've got to get in very early right at the start of illness and people generally don't go to the doctor straight away because they're lying in bed feeling awful Mm. it's very hard to get useful antiviral in early enough to make it worthwhile and in clinical practice they are now very rarely used that's interesting can i broaden this discussion very briefly just to vaccines in general because there has been a lot of uh, stuff in the news about the mmr vaccine here in Melbourne, but also um, internationally. I think that there was a documentary that was pulled from the Tribeca Film Festival, originally proposed by... Dr Wakefield, who yes. was the person who made it, who mm. was an old boss of mine. At the Is that right? Royal Free, Royal Free Hospital wow. in London. Wow. Yes, One uh, degree of separation. Yeah, that's yes. fascinating. So, yes. yeah, he made this documentary and it was proposed by uh, the patron of the Tribeca Film Festival. I feel like it's Robert De Niro, but I could be wrong. Uh, I think you're correct, mm. yes. Um, because he has a child with autism and because, yes. of course, the, f- the fame that um, Dr Wakefield has um, subsequent to deregistration is that he proposed that there is a link between the measles, mumps, rubella vaccination and autism in children. He did. Falsi- falsified the data, produced a spurious link, caused a massive upsurge in measles and many, many deaths in children unnecessarily mm. uh, because he dishonestly produced a paper in The Lancet, which The Lancet... Uh, took them 10 years, full retraction and apology. Andrew Wakefield has been struck off the medical register uh, but still somehow got to make this dishonest film, which, thank God, wasn't shown. Which is just shows wow. the power of these sorts of ideas. Mm. And I suppose it's all about, you know, having a precious child of your own that you want to protect from any adverse outcome. And I suppose autism is another adverse outcome that you want to protect your child But a against. very, very important message for people who've heard this. There is no link between MMR vaccine and autism. The MMR vaccine is safe, it's very effective and strongly recommended. And aren't there, isn't there an increase in uh, measles? cases uh, recently, I, yes. I heard. Yes, yeah. in Melbourne. In fact, here in Brunswick. That dangerous yeah. suburb of Brunswick. Yeah, really? Right. Yes. I'm glad. We've, you've all been inoculated, I should imagine. Well, I mean, I think it's in, as a consequence of this fear of the yeah. un, unintended consequences of MMR vaccines that, in fact, there has been an upsurge in measles cases in this local area. And just remind us, Nick, because um, we don't get to see much measles. I had measles as a kid, but um, generally you don't see it much now as a GP, I would imagine. What happens when you get measles? People of our generation, there was no vaccine and so measles was just one of those childhood illnesses you had to go through. But we forget that measles is a serious illness, like the flu. It makes kids very unwell. Most kids recover fine, but there are serious complications of measles, measles pneumonia, measles encephalitis. Uh, Deaths from measles are not common in the Western world, but they do happen. Mm. And if you get enough kids unvaccinated, enough kids getting measles, we will have measles deaths as a result. And that's what happened overseas as a result of this uh, scare about the MMR vaccine. Mm. Mm. And um, I've actually just talking about getting uh, viruses as a kid. I, had, I remember I had chickenpox the, when uh, man walked... Did man walk on the moon in 1969? Is that right? 
I think it was 1969. Anyway, so I remember... You've got some very blank looks there, didn't <laughs> you? Yeah, yeah. You guys, you're kind of decide. Because I think, and it could be a sort of a conflated memory, but I remember being home, scratching myself like bugger, putting, was it calamine lotion on? Yes. And uh, uh, watching the TV with, you know, black and white TV with, you know, Rocket going up and Neil Armstrong doing his, his little bit, scratching myself madly. Could be completely false, but I actually do remember having chicken pox. And again, chicken pox parties is what people used to have yes. to take your kids there, yeah. get it over and done with in the school holidays. But chicken pox, like measles, sometimes nasty pneumonias, brain infections. Especially when you're older too, yeah. Severe illness, if yeah. we can vaccinate, should yeah. be done. Yeah. And shingles. Don't forget about chicken pox related shingles that comes back whenever subsequently you're immunocompromised. You get quite mm. horrible, nasty mm. rash along a dermatome. Mm. So, it's very to avoid, I think. It's been a very virally morning uh, <laughs> this morning here on Radio <laughs> it's Therapy. It's an excellent segue to what I'm going to be talking about <laughs> later on. Exactly. Because that's all about autoimmunity and about dysfunction of autoimmunity. So, of the immune yes, system. Keep it in mind until after we've spoken to the surgeon. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Now we're going to try a little bit of technology here. Uh, we are just going to do this. Prof Harris, you're on the line there. Yep. Fantastic. Thanks for joining us. Um, you're speaking to Dr. Malpractice, uh, Dr. Perry Natal, and uh, Dr. Nick Carr here on uh, Radiotherapy. Um, I introduced you in the start of the show. You're a professor of orthopedic surgery. Yeah. Uh, what, now, what does that mean? What does a professor of orthopedic surgery do? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm kind of got a foot in both camps. So I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, you know, clinician with sees patients and operates, but I also run an academic practice. So I do uh, teaching and uh, run a, uh, a research centre, mm-hmm. which produces mainly clinical research, not lab research, which is a lot of what a lot of people associate with orthopedic research. But uh, clinical research, randomised trials, systematic reviews, methodology studies, things like that. That's a lot of stuff that you just uh, talked about. So w- what does that mean? If I, to the average person who's walking in the street, if they come up to you and said, so, you know, what have you been researching? What, do you just, what would you say? Uh, a lot of stuff. But um, a lot of the research we do is looking at the effectiveness of surgical procedures um, and so looking at patient reported outcomes, for instance, uh, quality of life, pain and function after having orthopedic surgery um, and also just reviewing the evidence and doing trials of certain procedures. So, you know, a particular operation, let's find out if it works. So we'll, we'll do it in some patients and not do it in others and see if there's a difference at the end. Now that seems pretty important to, to do research on whether a certain operation works or not. And I guess that might be the basis for your book, Surgery, The Ultimate Placebo. Tell us why you wrote this book. Um, I wrote the book to um, kind of put a counterpoint or a counter message out there. So much of what we hear and, and you look on TV and you watch... Uh, ABC's current program and, and it's how wonderful medicine is and how all these new things that we're doing uh, are helping us and saving lives and uh, there's, there's really very little reporting on the, the downside and yet we know when we look at the evidence objectively a lot of what we do is overestimated the, the benefits are overestimated we underestimate the harms the significant harms from medical interventions that tend to sort of go unnoticed and a lot of the things that we do particularly new things high-tech things the things that we think must be wonderful well we find out that when we actually test them scientifically and objectively we find out that they're not as wonderful as we think yeah and we're going to go into a couple of those procedures in a minute but why now why write the book now usually there's some event in somebody's life that makes them go okay it's time now to do something but did that happen to you no, um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I've been a proponent of evidence-based medicine and, and a scientific approach to, to medicine for uh, for a long time, um, and I guess I've wanted to write the book for a long time, um, and I and I've been gradually writing it for sort of five years. Mm. Um, so it wasn't a sudden out of the blue thing. It was. It's a message that I've been giving in, in yeah. lectures and things for a long time. And it's. It's just that this way I can get it out to educate 
the public not, and surgeons in general and not just the 30 people in the lecture hall that I'm lecturing to. And again, we'll get into the actual operations that, that uh, you write about in the book, but what's the reception been like from your peers? I mean, did they shun you at cocktail parties or, you know, you still got any friends left? <laughs> yeah, look, uh, it's a common question, but uh-huh. um, I, I would have to, you know, put my hand on my heart and say that the, re- the reception that I have received to me has been 100% positive. So really? I've wow. received a lot of uh, emails in particular, but also texts and <clears> just general conversation of people being very supportive of the book. Mm. Um, now, I, I would be neglectful if I didn't also mention that there has been negative feedback, but that negative feedback has not been directed to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell us about some of the surgical operations that we know and love and have been around for a long, long time, for which the evidence is kind of not exactly uh, gleaming. Um, yeah, so there's two different types of procedures then in that case. There's um, operations that don't work any better than placebo, um, and there's operations that do work uh, for some people, but don't work as well as we thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one operation in particular that I think probably doesn't work as well as we think is um, spine fusion surgery for back pain. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's something that's very commonly done, and in America. The total number of fusions for all causes is about one million per year. I mean, that's a lot of operations, and you're talking about tens of billions of dollars a year. Uh, in Australia, the rates are also increasing, and they're very high compared to other countries, um, and it varies a lot across Australia as well. Um, and a lot of the fusions are done for degenerative conditions and for back pain. We don't have the evidence, so I can't tell you that it is completely ineffective. I can't tell you that it's 100% effective. And the fact that we don't know disturbs me. You know, the fact that we don't have really good evidence uh, means that we're doing an operation without good evidence. Ian, it's Dr Nick here. Um, Do you have any information as to how operator-dependent some of those data outcomes are? Because clearly this is highly complex surgery and it's inevitable there are going to be some people who are extremely good at it and some who perhaps are less good. Yeah, I don't think it makes much difference. And when uh, uh, surgical volume has been looked at as one variable for for, uh, procedures, um, the evidence is not... Um, that clear that it makes a big difference and I think to the public they just think oh I'll go to him because he's a good surgeon and he's got good hands you know when you're talking about common orthopedic procedures um, I don't think that there's a whole lot of difference um, between the the uh, the good surgeon, the bad surgeon, and the evidence that we have for, say, hip and knee replacement is not necessarily that the high-volume surgeons get better results. Mm. Um, you know, that kind of stuff is difficult to work out scientifically because it's quite possible that the higher-volume surgeons are doing harder cases. You know, so uh, it becomes difficult. But, look, probably that, that is a factor, Um and and like any trade or any craft or any profession, there's always going to be uh, proponents or practitioners who are better than others. So I, I guess I have to admit that that's some part of it. And so you were saying that there is an absence of proof that something like back fusion actually works. And an absence of proof is not a proof of absence. And you'd have no. to wonder why so many people are actually having it done. I mean, what's your thoughts about that? The same reason why a lot of operations are being done is because we perceive them to be effective. Um, but our perception is unreliable. So let's take knee arthroscopy, for example. So somebody comes along and they get a sore knee from time to time, and uh, sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's not. They've got arthritis. Um, and at the moment, it's particularly bad. And you give an injection, you do an arthroscopy, you do something to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're a physiotherapist, you give them physiotherapy. And at some point later, they feel better than they did before. Um, and so we perceive that change in the uh, symptoms to be due to what we did. And that's really not a reliable way of assessing effectiveness of surgery. 
uh, or any intervention really. Um, and it's it's a logical fallacy of it follows, therefore it is because of, and it's really not a, a good way to base your practice because we know from experience that we can have procedures like that where we say, yeah, it's effective, I think it's effective, I think patients get better. But when we test it against placebo, patients don't get any more better than if we pretended to do the procedure. So, Ian, you've kept us all on tenterhooks. Tell us what's a waste of time. What have we been doing to people that turns out to be pointless, hopeless, and no better than placebo? Uh, well, I list them all in the book. Um, Give us a tasty, a taster sample. Something to make people come back to the whole course. I, I read something about appendicitis, and, and having had my appendix removed, I, I was shocked. <laughs> but you, you go into a bit of a nuance about appendicitis and, and what the latest yeah, trend so is. Look, look, appendicectomy is a good example. Let's look at that. So that, that to many people, is just so cut and dry. I mean, if, if you present with with signs of appendicitis, you need to have your appendix taken out. I mean, how could you ever question that? And yet it has been questioned. There's now been multiple randomised trials and there's ever been multiple systematic reviews of the randomised trials looking at two different forms of treatment for acute appendicitis without a perforated appendix comparing surgery to antibiotics. Um, And there's quite an argument that antibiotics is a reasonable treatment because the results are very good. Now, perhaps further down the line... Fair, are you fair income? Because I'm a, if I had said that in my sort of final year exam, I, I would have been deregistered. Yeah, well, you must have done your exam a little while. I did, yeah, I did. Around <laughs> <laughs> about the time antibiotics were discovered, but, you know, that, that really is quite startling. <laughs> yeah, but no, that's what the evidence shows, that the results are just as good with antibiotics. Now, the problem is that people will argue, well, you're more likely to get a recurrence later down the track if you get treated with antibiotics. Not not most, but some people will. Whereas if you have it taken out, by definition, you can't get a recurrence. But I would counter-argue that you're more likely, more likely to get surgical complications from having it taken out than having antibiotics. You're going to stay in hospital longer and it's possibly going to cost more. So there's, a, there's an argument to be had. That's all I'm really saying. It's not clear-cut. That if you've had, uh, if you've got appendicitis, you need to have it taken out. And the problem is, we don't know about this. Nobody's talking about this side of it. And mm. I even had a patient recently uh, with an orthopedic condition under me who developed abdominal pain. And so we got the surgeons to come and can you come and have a look at our patient? And they just said, oh well, I think he's probably got appendicitis. We'll just take his appendix out. And I said, well, does he? Is that necessary? Do you need to take it out? And he's looking at me like, well, I don't understand your question. You know, I've just said that he's possibly got appendicitis. Uh, What are you suggesting? And I said, well, can't we just treat it with antibiotics? And this surgical registrar was not even aware that surgical trials had been done comparing the treatment of appendicectomy to uh, antibiotics alone. So this was the trainee who was who was taking out people's appendices, and he wasn't even aware of the evidence. Well, you see that there's lots of reasons as to why that might be the case. Um, it would seem to me to be part of a, a sort of institutional or systemic issue that you know his bosses hadn't told him about it. He didn't think that it was going to be. I assume it was a him. It was going to be an issue. You see, so I assume. Yeah. It's not just about the person, and I think that's where your book is really coming at it, that, uh, you know, let's inform loads of people. So, you know, I guess when um, a person goes to see their GP or their surgeon, they can come armed with some information and say, well, hang on, I read Prof. Harris's book and it says X, Y, Z about arthroscopy. What do you say about that? I mean, let's imagine you've got that hope. Yeah, well, no, I hope they don't quote my book because it might just get me into trouble. I hope what they do, I, I hope what they do is they ask the right questions. Um, and, and so what, what are the right questions? So you tell us the right questions yeah. to ask. So the patient should be asking, can you tell me reliably what the probability is that I will improve with surgery? And how does that compare to my probability of improvement without surgery? And and that's a question that, that often throws them because it's kind of like, well, you know, you've got this fracture, uh, I can operate on it, and uh, and I, you know, and I think that you'll do well. Um, and 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 that's normally enough for people to say, okay, well, if you think I'll do well, I'll do it, and, and without asking, well, do you think I'll do just as well if you don't operate? 
Right. Um, and what's the, what evidence do you have to show me that surgery is better than non-operative treatment? Ian, I've met one or two orthopaedic surgeons over the years, and I don't know too many who are going to respond positively to someone challenging them saying, show me the evidence that your treatment is better than something else. No, I'll, 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 I'll disagree with that. I, I think that, you know, orthopaedic surgeons are smart people. They're, they're you know, to, to, to get into medicine, you've got to be pretty smart. And, um, and most of them don't mind being asked for second opinions. Uh, most of them don't mind being challenged um, and being asked for the evidence. So I think it's, it's, it's quite reasonable. Yeah, maybe there's a new wave of, of medicos coming up because I imagine if I get challenged or if any of my mates, I'm looking at my, my two comrades here on the panel, with the patient that said, okay, I want the evidence for, against, probabilities, prognosis. That's, that's, you know, in a lot of areas, we just don't have the evidence. And maybe that's what you say is, hey, you know, the best evidence we have is this, which isn't great. Yeah, but even to admit that, just say, look, we yeah. don't have much evidence to say this is better. My, in my experience, you know, I think it is. Uh, yeah. Other people think it isn't. And I have to do that as well because the patients come to see me and I'm, I'm often recommending against surgery and, mm. and, and maybe that's a bias of my practice and I get the third patients who don't want to have operations as well. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but I often have to admit to the patients, I'll, I'll say, look, um, there isn't much evidence that surgery is better than non-operative treatment, therefore I'm not going to operate. Um, and what a lot of other surgeons do is I'll say, well, there's not much evidence that surgery is better than non-treatment, therefore I'm going to operate. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so the default position for them is to operate. My default position is not to operate. But I have to admit to patients, I have to say, look, if you go to see 10 other orthopedic surgeons, seven or eight of them will probably operate on you. Yeah, yeah. And so they need to be aware of that. You know, um, you're a bit of an iconoclast because the, the kind of saying that we psychiatrists have for surgeons is never in doubt but occasionally wrong. I mean, it's, it's yeah. you're the complete opposite of that. You're constantly in doubt, constantly questioning stuff. Yeah, it, it, it is. And, and, and I, I have to say, why are we doing things just because everyone else yeah. does it? Yeah. Uh, that's the appendectomy. I mean, that, that registrar that I spoke to, he just took out appendices because that's what people did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, he wasn't really questioning it. Um, and his default position was to shoot first and ask questions later, you yeah. know, to, to operate and then get the evidence. Yeah, um, but it, it really shouldn't be like that. Now the book is called "Surgery: The Ultimate Placebo?" Question mark Is there a question mark at the end of that title? No, uh, there's a full stop. Okay. <laughs> there's no okay. doubt. There's, there is no. There's not a doubt about it being the ultimate placebo. Um, I'm sure it's out in all uh, good bookstores. Uh, it's by Professor Ian Harris. Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Good on you. Triple R. Ten minutes to learn all about NMDA. Is that right? NMDA. Thank you. NMDA receptors. Yeah, and to make it understandable to ordinary and normal people, which I've had to think about pretty hard. Ordinary normal, but like me. Yeah. yeah oh, okay. So let, let's talk about it then, yeah. um, and maybe to appreciate why it is such a a huge revolution in our understanding of neurological conditions and also why I'm so obsessed with it. I might just ask you to think about... Um, I have an obsession with NMDA receptors. Uh, I do. You Is have... there a group for people like this? <laughs> My name's <laughs> Kerry Natal and I... <laughs> I think you have to be obsessed with someone, something to want to do a PhD on it. Sure. Uh, so I want you to think about the Alien series of movies that came out... Well, first one came out in like 1979, I think Alien, and then there was Aliens and oh. Alien Resurrection, and then there was Prometheus, and there's another one coming out. It's a Kleinian feast of psychiatry. Absolutely, and I think the enduring appeal of these movies is this horrifying idea that your own body can incubate a alien life form, which then bursts out of your abdomen covered in slime and destroys you, <laughs> and that's what this condition actually does except that rather than reaching up to rip your head off like in the movie in this condition it reaches inside your brain to invisibly dissolve it and that's pretty amazing nice <laughs> metaphor that is a that is a really it is it metaphor. is an amazing condition so the, the thing about it though is it's not a new condition it's been hiding in plain sight for years now probably millennia in fact um possibly it happens to um uh, 
animals other than humans. In fact, there was a polar bear that was diagnosed with this particular condition last year. Well, 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 back up. How, yes. does, how does a polar bear get diagnosed well, with NMDA sadly, receptor? Well, sadly, by autopsy, this uh, polar bear. But anyway. So hang on. So what you're saying is, and yep. just to because it's Sunday morning and my mm. brain hasn't started working, yep. that we have receptors called NMDA, which will t- tell us all about, and our body can react against those receptors. Yes, that's right. Okay. And the mechanism as to why that happens and how it happens okay. is a great discovery story in modern science, yeah. I think. Yeah. Sorry. Um, and the reason why it's important, I suppose, is because it really primarily affects otherwise healthy young women. Um, and now that we understand a bit more about the mechanism, we think it probably also affects children and young men as well. So it's a terribly debilitating condition which results in really high rates of actually death and then permanent disablement to the people who unfortunately suffer it. So not only is it this terribly science fiction fantasy type disease, but also it has these huge consequences for people who otherwise would live healthy lives. So I think it's really significant. And the only reason we know about it is because of a Spanish neurologist called Joseph Dalmau who was working at the University of Pennsylvania in 2007. So it's only in 2007 that this actually was really thought about as an entity and really not until 2009 when they published a, a larger volume case series where people actually started to, t- to say this is a thing. So how does it present if I've got NMDA receptor antibodies? Okay. Well, well, well yeah. so, so what happens is someone say a young woman, maybe 25 years old, um, has a bit of a cold. We were talking about colds before. And it goes away. And then she has some psychiatric symptoms, which is one of the reasons why I'm interested in this condition as a psychiatrist. Usually people present with psychiatric symptoms which have an abrupt onset and don't have any history, like hearing voices, um, having suicidal thoughts, having delusional ideas. And so this woman then presents to the hospital. She's admitted to hospital, probably a first episode psychosis, everyone thinks. And then three days later, she has an abrupt respiratory and autonomic collapse. Of course, she's in a psych ward. Can't treat someone like that in a psych ward. There's a code blue called. She's transferred to the ICU. And there she stays for months and months and months. In fact, many, many months, some, sometimes up to years in the ICU. Now, the reason why Joseph Dalmau became interested in this particular phenomenon was he found that there was more than one woman who sort of fitted this profile and so he he decided to learn a little bit more about them and I, in my mind, because I've had to turn it into a movie in my mind, I Mm. imagine that Joseph Dalmau is sitting by the bedside of this woman in the ICU and and reading through her history and because it's a North American hospital that he's at, University of Pennsylvania, they've done all these tests on this woman, Mm -hmm. uh, including probably a whole body MRI which includes um, finding therefore um, a sort of a multi multi-lobed cystic and solid mass in her ovary, which mm-hmm. probably is a teratoma. Which is a type of tumour? So yeah. let me tell you about teratomas, because that's the mm-hmm. other science fiction element of this particular story that you need to have in your mind to understand how exactly this works. So we know that in the ovaries and also in the testes that people have um, cells that can become any kind of human tissue. Mm-hmm. And under the influence of you know normal germination, um, they will become an organised structure like a baby Mm -hmm. but under sort of disorganized other influences which we're not really clear about they can become anything tooth hair skin and also it turns out brain tissue Mm. so we'd always for many years thought these were just kind of medical oddities in fact there's a whole series of them up in the anatomy museum at Mm -hmm. melbourne university behind plexiglass and in fact i read a margaret atwood short story years ago where there was this woman who had one removed and kept it on her mantelpiece in a jar of formaldehyde but that's Anyway, came back to me this morning when I was thinking about this topic. But we never thought they had any significance apart from that they were kind of weird and a bit freaky. But it turns out they are highly significant. Um, And the only reason we know this is because of Joseph Dalmau's painstaking research. So he collected this series of patients, just like the one I described, um, all of whom had, or most of whom had teratomas. He went and had a look after seeing this woman, who I imagine in in the ICU, he found a series of 11 other women, um, most of whom were, you know, young women, all of whom had teratomas, um, and most of whom had pretty negative outcomes. So of those 12... Nine had the teratoma removed, and that in itself, I think, is quite an amazing thing. Can you imagine speaking to a surgeon, particularly perhaps the mm. man that we just spoke to, saying, there's an unconscious young woman in ICU, I'd like you to take out her ovary urgently, please do it. I'm sure that was a difficult conversation. Mm. Um, however, of those nine people, eight had a reasonable recovery. Mm. 
Um, of the three people in that series who didn't have the teratoma removed, two of them died. Mm. When they had a look at their brains under autopsy, what they saw was quite widespread scarring, particularly in the hippocampus, and abnormal T-cell infiltrates in that area as well. So a really abnormal autoimmune response. And this is the point at which Joseph Delmau had his brainwave, which mm. I hope gives him a Nobel Prize mm. one day. He thought... Um, there's something about the cross-reactivity between the teratoma, which is causing the immune system to react against the brain itself. Mm-hmm. What if there is brain tissue in the teratoma and the immune system recognises it as foreign, mm-hmm. develops an antibody to that antigen, and then as it travels around the body, somehow it penetrates the blood-brain barrier and sees that same antigen in the brain and it goes, hang on, I've seen this before. Mm-hmm this is foreign, and it attacks it. Ah, mm. Fascinating. And that antibody is to this receptor called NMDA. Yes, that's right. Wow. It's amazing. Isn't it? That's only like nine years old. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, less than. And and since and we think that this is just the tip of this particular scientific iceberg, that mm. there are lots and lots of other receptors in the central nervous system that people um, for some reason have developed antibodies against. And that might explain a lot of the autoimmune diseases that we have that preferentially affect the brain. Right. So um, NMDA, what's so spectacular about NMDA? Well, I think the only reason that that's become the focus of this particular um, inquiry is because there are a lot of NMDA receptors in the hippocampus and also in the pons and the midbrain, which which, um, governs, you know, awareness and alertness. Mm -hmm. So hippocampus first attacked. uh, It's on the surface of the brain. It's probably more accessible. And and that's what governs emotions and memory. And that's why people, we think, experience these psychiatric symptoms. Mm. And then when the condition penetrates more deeply that's when people's autonomic system gets attacked and they become unconscious. Now, I'm conscious of the time here, but mm. I'll, I'll allow Dr Nick one question. Yeah. Perry, to me, a very important question as a GP, just yeah. in case all my 25-year-old women are going to come flooding in on Monday wanting an ultrasound <laughs> to check their ovaries. Yes. Just how common or uncommon is this condition? Well... You, I would have to, strictly speaking, call it uncommon. However, the more we look for it, the more we find it. And in case series, you know, of women, for example, who've had postpartum psychosis, which is my own area of interest, um, there was, I think, three out of uh, 85 who tested positive for um, an autoantibody receptor. Interestingly, two of those three weren't to the NMDA receptor. It was an unknown receptor. Which you've, you've got to keep us abreast of this research too, because this is like this is cutting edge research. It is we'll, cu- we'll get you back on the show to talk some more about it too. I, I'm happy to this, come back again. Thanks well, very this much. This is live science. <laughs> this is fantastic. Um, just for anybody who is, needs uh, to um, to talk about things, I'll just give you the lifeline number, which is one three double one one four, and the Beyond Blue website. You know, Beyond Blue, all one word. Fantastic resource. Um, if you've got any uh, questions or issues that you want to look up there, love the Beyond Blue. Uh, website. You have been listening to Radiotherapy. We're going to sign off now. We've been talking with uh, Professor Ian Harris uh, on the blower, Dr Nick Carr, and uh, Dr Perry Nader. We're going to leave you with the wonderful scientist from Einstein, Agogo. they got a Bonza show on. Speak to you next Sunday at 10. Yo, yo, yo. Just sit back, enjoy yourself, get ready to have some fun, fun with Africa Bambada, Universal Zulu Nation, the Godfather of Hip Hop Culture on Triple R, 102.7 FM. Oh! This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.